It may have been the biggest investigative scoop of this year's election. This week, the Daily Beast reported that Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia and a staunch opponent of abortion rights, paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009, citing documents that included a receipt from the abortion clinic, an image of a $700 check from Walker, and a get-well card signed by the former football star. Walker immediately denied the story and insisted he had no idea who his accuser was. But then the Daily Beast followed up with an equally astonishing story, that the woman was actually the mother of one of his children. What prompted the woman, still anonymous, to come forward now, and what impact will this have on one of the most important Senate races in the country? We'll talk to the Daily Beast reporter who broke the story, Roger Sollenberger, and Yahoo News' own John Ward, and then we'll chat with Slate's Dahlia Lithwick about the new Supreme Court term and her new book, Lady Justice, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. All right. There is so much that we could be talking about in the news this week. Um, but I've got to say the Herschel Walker story kind of trumps everything on the political front. And we've got, as I mentioned, a great guest to talk about it. Uh, the Daily Beast reporter who broke the story. We've got John Ward, our own Yahoo News political analyst who's been covering events in Georgia. And then we've got Dahlia Lithwick uh, of Slate to talk about our new book and the law. Uh, so we're going to spare you our usual blather of a crosstalk and get right to what is a pretty fascinating show. So let's get to it. All right, we've now got with us the journalist man of the hour, Roger Sollenberger of the Daily Beast, who broke the Herschel Walker abortion story, as well as our own John Ward to give us a little take on the uh, political impact. Roger, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. And John, of course. Hello again. Let's start out with your bombshell reporting this week. And as astonishing as your original story was about Walker paying for his girlfriend's abortion in 2009, I was, if anything, even more astonished by your follow-up story after Walker A, denied it, and B, said he had no idea who this woman was who was talking to you about this when you reported that she was the mother of one of his children. And I was trying to think, like, okay, she has wanted to remain anonymous, but once she sort of acknowledged that, I would think that the universe of mothers of Herschel Walker's children is not infinite, <laughs> that it kind of narrows the playing field somewhat. Tell us, is this woman, do you think, will be, might be willing to come forward publicly at this point and identify herself? Yeah, she's 
have to say is first, uh, people need to know how credible she is. And they need to know also just how brave she is. She's a really unique person just on her own. And she's been able to provide documentation that as you guys know, it's like any reporter's dream, right? If, if you were to ask a reporter how they would tell this story, right? What would you need to tell this story? It's like, well, we, we would like to see proof that she had an abortion first, right? Did it happen? It's like, well, she has the receipt from the clinic, right? So we have that. Well, if you're saying that Herschel paid, we would need to see some proof of payment. She has a bank deposit slip that has an image of the check signed by Walker. And those two things, the receipt and the check, five days apart from each other. And he happened to tuck that check inside a get well soon card that he signed and he wrote a little note on it. I mean, it's as far as asking for like the receipts, like you really can't get much better. I mean, like, you know, you could have like, I guess a video of Herschel like going into the clinic with her, you know, or something like that. Like this advertisement was paid for by Herschel Walker or something. But like, aside from, from that, like it is, just about as locked up as you could possibly be. The woman is also just totally credible. And yeah, she is the mother of one of his children. Now, she had the abortion first, and they both chose, they both decided that they didn't want the child. Herschel urged her not to have the child. And then later, when she got pregnant again, about three years later, uh, is a long-term relationship. Herschel, by the way, was maintaining long-term relationships at this time with multiple women, which is wild, that she decided that she wanted to keep it. She felt like something about the timing felt, you know, serendipitous to her. It felt like this is, yeah, you know, I, I want to have this one. Herschel said, though, that it wasn't the right time for him, that it wasn't convenient. So she chose to have the kid. And as far as we know, there are four different mothers. I don't know if that's, like you're saying, if that's the limit of the universe, you know, or is the universe expanding? We don't know. But yeah, and Herschel knows exactly who this woman is also. Uh, he was asked at that press conference, you know, did you call her? Have you reached out to her since this has you know, been reported? And he says, why would I do that? It's like, well, why would you do that, Herschel? You know, it's reported that this is, this is the woman. And as far as I know, uh, as of today, Herschel Walker still has not contacted her. So I, I really can't explain that. He knows exactly who this woman is. And just to put like not too fine a point on it, this woman was the woman in the first story that I wrote about Herschel Walker's secret kids, right? So there was like this report was out there. And in that report, Herschel confirmed it. He confirmed our report when we reported it. It's in the initial report. And he still goes out and says that everything in the Daily Beast is a lie. It's like, well, that's not, that's not true by your own lights, man. Like by, by your own admission, you have confirmed not only things that the Daily Beast reported, but specifically this woman. So as far as why he hasn't contacted her about this to see you know, what she's doing I don't know, ask her if it's true, maybe. I have no idea. Just coming back to my question, and this is all fascinating, but I mean, do you think she might at this point be willing to come forward publicly? Sorry, yeah, I was building up 
her credibility and right. I mean, and and the you know trying and to- made a pretty persuasive case for it. But obviously, you know, in these sorts of situations, people want to know who the accuser if she comes is. forward. Yeah. If she comes forward, it's it's not impossible that she comes forward. Now, we have to understand exactly what the stakes are here for this woman. And she did come forward. She made one step forward after the initial report. And that was specifically because Herschel denied it and called it a flat out lie. And so she did not want that out there. It really upset her. And she's like, okay, well, how about this? I'll, I'll say this if people don't believe me, right? But again, this woman has Herschel Walker's son to protect as well as herself. We all know what the climate is like in this country. We all know how important this race is. So there are a lot of reasons that she would want to try to keep her name out of the public as much as possible. That said, you know, it's not ruled out. It really isn't. But that is her decision. And I, I would not blame her if she, if she didn't want to come forward at all. One of the reasons the story had, you know, even more impact than just the facts of him having paid for an abortion would have was was that Walker's son, Christian Walker, came forward and he's an influencer, has a huge number of social media followers, and he just really blasted his father in videos posted on social media did that were you expecting that did that come as a as a surprise to you or did you think that this that he would come forward like that i mean you know christian obviously has that reputation as a right wing you know like he's he's an influencer but he's like outrageous he's like purposefully outrageous performatively outrageous. he's you know pretty vicious on there and very hard to the right right very mega So a lot of people were surprised. I noticed something after I published these stories, the first two about the the secret kids. And again, that's not just tabloid stuff. Walker is an outspoken critic of absentee fathers in the black community. Like there's eminently news value to it, right? But that was around Father's Day. And then Christian tweeted something that I don't quite recall what it is. You can look it up. But I read it as being not so thinly veiled attack on his dad just by sort of omission there. And when he came out just recently, he's saying the same thing. He's publicly saying, he's like, you guys think I'm a hypocrite for saying the things I do about fathers and all that. It's like, I've been talking about my dad. Don't you understand? Don't you understand that this is my anger and my pain and and all of that? And so I wasn't like shocked at the fact that he spoke out he was saying some some pretty deeply personal and, and shocking things like that that was what shocked me you know he's like my dad threatened to kill me and my mom was one of the things that he said and people need to remember that they they had to move six times in six months because they were afraid of the violence of his father so i think the fact that he did say something yeah i it, it makes sense to me but the stuff that he's saying i didn't anticipate him saying that. And, and that, that's what we should be focused on there, what he's saying and why, why that's important. In his first response uh, to your story, he called it a lie. And then he said he was going to be suing the Daily Beast for defamation uh, the next morning. Um, as far as I know, but you, you would know better, uh, that lawsuit has not been filed yet. I can't 
I just can't, he's threatened to sue us. So I just can't comment on anything like that. Uh, I can say that we stand by our story 100% and just leave it at that and trust that you guys know how to work Pacer. (laughs) (laughs) We do. We have accounts. This is obviously an evolving story and we're headed towards actually a debate between Warnock and Herschel Walker a week from today. I'm curious, how is the Warnock camp reacting to the story and how are they using or not using this issue in their campaign? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And again, I'm trying to steer clear of the political side of this from anything like speculative or punditry or or weighing in. That's what we have Ward here for uh, when we get to him. You know, I, I can say like what I've what I've sort of read you know, is it, it seems that he is sort of letting the story just be out there. I, I think he's, you know, reaffirming his commitment to, you know, reproductive freedom, things like that, right? It seems like he's not like coming out of the gate and just punching him in the face with it. But I, I really have no idea what the campaign is. I can, I can add one, one little uh, detail to this, which is that uh, just yesterday, our own Marquise Francis, who was in Georgia at a Warnock event, asked Senator Warnock about the about the allegations. And uh, Warnock, who had not commented uh, about them at all, really, and had done exactly, Roger, what you said his strategy was, and I still basically think still is, he called the allegations disturbing. And that's pretty much as far as he said. But Ward is on the line here, or at least he was. You still there, John? I'm here. Uh, so why don't you uh, give us your sense of the uh, political fallout and um, how Warnock is trying to kind of thread the needle here? Well, I mean, you know, I think if you're Walker's camp, there's two groups of people that you're thinking about. One is middle of the road suburban voters who are pretty important in a purple state like Georgia. And then your base and the base, I think, generally, you know, the hardcore MAGA and hardcore evangelical types, I think, to the, to the astonishment of a lot of people, are going to stick with Walker despite this. I think there may be, may be some peeling off of some, some religious voters, hardcore religious voters. But I think for the more middle-of-the-road voters, this gives them potentially an, ex- an excuse or a reason not to vote for Walker. Uh, while also still voting for other Republicans or not to vote at all. I think it's the former is probably more likely since, you know, one of the key stats from the primary is that Brian Kemp got 85,000 votes more than Walker did among Republicans. So, you know, that's a lot of votes in a race that's going to be close. And, and this is just another, you know, item on the menu if you're looking for reasons not to vote for Walker. You know, the story that I keep thinking of uh, in this context is uh, Access Hollywood, in which we thought, you know, when that video came out, Trump was finished. And of course, you know, he wasn't. Uh, And it does raise the question whether there is any more a kill shot in American politics, given how tribalized our politics has become. People just stick to their camps no matter what the facts. But, Roger, I just want to come back to the, the, the sort of timeline on this because you had reported in June about this woman being the mother of one of 
Herschel Walker's children, and he confirmed it at the time. Has he been in touch with this child? Has he paid child support? Has he paid anything to, you know, of the expenses of this child over the years? Yeah, um, definitely going to answer that question. Just to say, though, that the Access Hollywood thing, if I could tag on that really quickly. Sure. Um, and it, it does touch on this. It's like, yeah, this story, I think, is different than Access Hollywood. I think that this story, that Access Hollywood was a tape that came out and we had an event around it. It was a release that everyone talked about, but it was one thing, right? This was the thing. And there was a bunch of like fallout and commentary and all that. But this story has legs to it. And it's, I think this is a different event. It's a different type of story that it will be built on, right? And to your point, going back to that, that first story, it's like, well, yes, this is, this is the same woman. So it's not really like the, there are two stories already just about her. And as far as the child support payments, he has been compliant, she says, with child support. So he has paid that. I'd also direct you to the article where she, she has this great quote where she says, uh, he didn't want to be responsible for the child that we did not have. And then he didn't want to be responsible for the child that we did have. And Christian Walker has come out and said that, well, my dad wasn't there for any of us. He was not present in any of our lives. He was not a present father. So as far as the legalities, right, that question, Walker is compliant with whatever that legal requirement is. But beyond that, you know, he sends, um, you know, Christmas gifts birthday presents and that as far as and pays regular child support monthly checks for support of this child yeah and and to my knowledge that's basically it like that's that's really basically it just one more question on the timeline because you were talking to her in june the woman and did you know then about the abortion or did she only you know, tell you about that later? And if so, what prompted her? I mean, Walker was won the primary back in May. So it's been known he's the nominee since then. What prompted her now? Yeah, I mean, I can't talk about the timeline of my sourcing, you know, and how that went. But I can say what she said, Mm -hmm. which is that you know, him putting himself so far, ridiculously far to the right. I mean, it's it's irrational anyway. It just seemed weird anyway, just politically. He's the only one who has doubled down on going out to the abortion absolutist, right? I mean, like Blake Masters, right, scrubbed his website of all that shit that he was saying about, you know, like personhood amendment and all that crap, right? Like he he just like made sure that it is just like not there. And he looks, you know, obviously like he's covering it up. Walker just doubles down and he goes harder and harder and harder. Right. And she couldn't take it. She could not take the hypocrisy. She said, we all deserve better. And I don't know. I mean, this is a real question. So a question about the Republican machine behind him and how they've enabled this and all of that. But, you know, we're talking about a candidate here. We are talking about a person and the person decided to run for Senate right? This is crazy. The person decided to run for Senate knowing that woman that he had had an abortion with paid her 
and is a registered Democrat that this story is out there, right? And he never reached out to her, never let her know he was running, never asked to see what her feelings were about her family, let alone just asked to see, hey, if I run, are you going to you know, support me? Are you going to come out and say bad things about me? Didn't do that at all. You know, and- Roger, that, sorry, uh, that, that raises also questions about the competency of the campaign. I think you guys did some great reporting on how Herschel Walker was lying to uh, his own campaign about a lot of these things. But, you know, campaigns do kind of oppo research on their own candidates to find these things out, to make sure that there aren't going to be any surprises. Do you have any insight at all? I mean, particularly after the first stories that you did about him having secret children, did they make any effort to find out what else is out there? I mean, you would think that they would have. There are some like conflicting reports around this. I don't. So Politico reported that an allegation was floating. They have one on record source. She walked it back. She doesn't think that this is the same allegation. It sounds like that allegation is really just a rumor. There's some unnamed source quoted in that piece saying that like Walker was like, it was known that he was spreading his seed. And so I think they just like assumed that a professional athlete, you know, might have a an abortion out there. Like, I, I think that that's what it was. It was just a, a rumor. That's my hunch. I don't know. It could because be. The question is, did they ask him directly? I would imagine that they did. I don't know. I know that they approached him about the kids that he had. And I know that he lied to them not once, but twice about it in the face of proof even, you know? So this is the guy, the kind of guy that we're dealing with and not just us, but the campaign. This is the kind of guy that the campaign has to deal with. And then you get to the question about the juggernaut behind him. He's like, well, I'm a celebrity in Georgia. How are you going to stop me? Donald Trump loves me. And, you know, it's like, well, what do you do? Do you have to get behind him? And it looks like they did. I don't know how you manage a candidate like that. I, I really don't. I know that Christian Walker has now said that he had not, you know, like warned his dad about an abortion that was reported in the political piece. Christian said that never happened. Washington Post backed that up last night. Washington Post also says that vetting did not, this did not turn up in vetting. And I have no reason to believe that any oppo would have turned this up. I, I just don't see how that's possible. So getting back to the uh, political impact uh, on this, it is, I was watching Fox last night just to get a sense of what they're saying about this. And there was just this sort of ferocious uh, assault on Warnock, who has does have some baggage on the personal front uh, in his past, a uh, pretty messy dispute with an ex who at one point accused him of, you know, trying to run her over. John, is that the strategy uh, for the Walker folks at this point, just to go assault head on on uh, Raphael Warnock? Yeah, I mean, I saw Eric Erickson mentioned the uh, the Warnock, you know, domestic dispute. Um, the way they characterize it is Warnock running over his ex-wife. Um, and, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't really hold up if you look at the details. Uh, I mean, it sounds, to say that he ran her over, um, apparently they had a dispute. He was backing up his car and was going three miles an hour and, and and she accused him of running over her foot. Uh, police checked it out, said she was able to walk, had no injuries. So, you know, those are the details of that dispute. I think the function that that serves 
for Republicans is just twofold, muddy the waters and try to sully Warnock, the image of Warnock as an upright, uh, you know, pastor. And then the other strategy is just double down. Um, Dana Loesch uh, said it on her radio show or podcast. You know, she said, I don't care if Herschel Walker aborted, you know, uh, rare eagle babies, basically, is what she said. Uh, I just yeah. want control of the Senate. So it's really just about power. You know, that's the hardcore folks like Dana Loesch. But I, I'm wondering about the Mitch McConnells, you know, who are see this as a, uh, you know, potentially devastating blow uh, for their hopes of recapturing control of the Senate. Is there well, I mean, any... You saw, you saw Stephen Law, they were doubling down. That's That's McConnell's guy. That's... The, right. the conduit to the money. And- Except actually the critical question is indeed, where is the money going and where are the ad purchases going? And the the kind of the Republican D.C. establishment is shifting its money away from the Georgia races right now and the Pennsylvania races and moving into others where they think they might be able to well, get Where else and- if they if they move out of Georgia and Pennsylvania? I thought Oz was still competitive in, in Pennsylvania, but like that's pretty much taken away their shots at, at retaking control. I mean, where Nevada. else is there? Do they have Nevada? Yeah, that's one, but that's not going to do it if they lose a seat in Pennsylvania that, that that cancels each other out. And then you're looking at what, Arizona, where Masters is, you know, pretty significantly behind, although I understand he had a good debate last night, at least according to Twitter. Um, but, um, you know, their options are not great here. And then, John, you know, you've got the national Republicans, the McConnells and, you know, his his pack. But then you've got the Georgia Republicans and Brian Kemp is keeping his distance from Herschel Walker. They have not done a single event uh, together and he has not come to his defense at all. So what are Republicans down there hearing that maybe the national Republicans aren't hearing. I mean, they, they're, they're closer to the ground. They're talking to voters all the time. I mean, that makes you think that uh, they think this could be a lost cause. Well, I just think it goes back to when Kemp was under attack from Trump. You know, Walker showed up at a rally where, where Trump was attacking Kemp. And Walker, you know, tried to kind of toe the line there, or walk a fine line there, but he clearly chose a side. And Kemp remembers that. There's no love lost there. And it just goes back to what I was saying earlier about the gap in vote total in the primary between the two. Kemp looks like he's in good shape against a very formidable opponent, Stacey Abrams. You know, if Walker can pull it off, it'll show the the power of tribalism. But that's about it. Roger, to uh, wrap up here, I was struck in your previous comment that this is an ongoing story. You certainly had you know, significant follow-up this week to your original bombshell, but um, it sounds like you're expecting more on this front to be coming out. I'll put it to you this way. The same year that Walker had an abortion, he also fathered a child out of wedlock with a different woman. Not uh, this woman, another woman, another woman, same year, 2009. Okay. And these two women did not know each other. I have heard that sort of story from other women again and again, that they did not know 
that he was maintaining long-term, like serious long-term relationships. And there's going to be some reporting on that for sure. As far as like the specific abortion story, I have no reason to believe that there would not be more. Hmm. Tantalizing. <laughs> all right. <laughs> on that note, we will all be checking the Daily Beast uh, religiously from here on in till Election Day. Roger, I want to uh, thank you and congrats again. It was uh, a great scoop. And, uh, you know, we all like to have impact and you certainly did. So uh, thanks. And of course, thanks again, John, for joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Thanks to the very famous Mark Isikoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and the less famous Mike Seaman. Thank you guys so much. It was a blast. All, All right, right. Take care. Take care. Thanks a lot. We now have with us uh, one of our favorite guests to talk about the Supreme Court and the law, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate. She is the author of the new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Dahlia, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me back. So lots to talk about here, but I, I just want to sort of start out. You, you cast your book here as about women lawyers fighting back against the Trump onslaught. And, you know, when I think about women and the law right now, I immediately think of Eileen Cannon, uh, the federal judge in Florida overseeing the uh, Mar-a-Lago classified records issue investigation. I think of Amy Coney Barrett, uh, one of the new members of the Supreme Court who joined in the Dobbs decision. So clearly women are all over the map uh, on legal disputes. Why cast this as a book about women lawyers? It's a great question. It's the one usually people like save to wallop me at the end of the interview. So I'm <laughs> but super, we start out the walloping. Super psyched. This is Skullduggery's brand. Uh, it's yeah. just like take out the brick bat and go. <laughs> I mean, I think the answer for me is, look, at, at, at the first take, the book doesn't purport to be about, you know, all women lawyers were members of the Trump resistance. And it could never be that because, as you say, there's an awful lot of women. You know, you can add the Sidney Powells, right? The unbelievable sure. number of women. Forgot about her. Who, yeah, no, who were in the trench. Jenna Ellis, you know, who who still today Trump's team is full of, you know, women lawyers who are willing to say anything he tells them to say, uh, lawful or not. So I don't purport to be saying that every single woman is on uh, team law and order as you and I conceive it. But I do think a couple of things, and, and they're worth saying. I think that one of the lessons that I take from the Federalist Society and its ability to place some women on the federal judiciary, in spite of the fact that overwhelmingly the judges that Mitch McConnell and Trump put up in the Trump years were white men. But, you know, to me, this is kind of a straight line to the $1.6 billion that just went to Leonard Leo. His job is to find people who will be make it seem as though these are ideas that are popular for women, right? So 
good job finding an Amy Coney Barrett, who I think is not representative of how most women jurists think about reproductive freedom and bodily autonomy. But I do think that if you have cofillions of dollars, cofillions not being a unit of money, but if you have a lot of money to spend on finding needles in haystacks and promoting them through the ranks to do the bidding of Mitch McConnell, you can do it. And so to me, it's not that there aren't these women. I just think they're wildly not representative of how women think about the force of law and the machinery of law. And so, yeah, you can find them and you can vault them up the chain. And that's what the Federalist Society has done. But I don't think it's reflective of the polls we're seeing, the women registering to vote, you know, the outcomes we've seen in Kansas, in Alaska, uh, in Michigan, where women writ large don't think that the law should be weaponized to put women in jail for miscarriage. Let me ask you the reverse angle of Mike's question. There are plenty of men who were members of the resistance and who fought against the who fought for democracy and who fought against, you know, kind of the attacks of the Trump administration. Why in your book did you choose to elevate the role of women? What was distinct or different about women's role in that that made you think a, a whole book needed to be written about it? That that's the nerf brickbat question. I like it. No, I think that's right. And I think I'm very, very careful in the introduction of the book to say that there were so, so many men uh, who did this work, and I in no way mean to minimize their role. But I think the thesis of the book, and this is the claim I make and we can fight about it or not, is that women do have a really special relationship with the law and that we have been elevating men as lawyers and thinkers about the law from the founding. We make claims about you know men and the law all the time. And I wanted to have kind of a little HOV lane off to the side to at least speculate on whether law in the hands of really gifted women attorneys can A, bring different outcomes, better outcomes, and B, why it is that we don't think uh, that women and the law may have a special, special relationship under the law, under the Constitution and under the the operative statutes that we talk about. And so I don't, again, I think this is one of those not all men, not all women, like it was not meant to be essentializing, but it was meant to say, if we really want to hold up hero after hero after hero, of American constitutional law, and they're always unerringly men until you get to RBG, then who are we burying? Who are we missing? And it's one of the reasons the book starts with Polly Murray, somebody who I think we don't remember, don't think about, don't credit, because I think that the story of American constitutional law includes so many women who really, by the way, had to fight their way in and had to consistently and persistently say, no, I belong here too. And so that was the story I really wanted to tell. I was going to say uh, that maybe the best way to answer the question that Victoria just asked you is by talking about some of these women. And I actually wanted to start with uh, Pauli Murray uh, because, you know, you write about women in this book who are both well-known uh, to people who follow these issues and people who are much more obscure. But you begin, as you pointed out, with Pauli Murray, who is a fascinating character and I think uh, forerunner uh, of the people that you write about, and yet no one knows who she is. So tell us about her, and then let's get into some of the other uh, characters that you profile. That's exactly right. And it was incredibly important to me 
to start by making the point that I think we have a little bit of Patty Hearst syndrome when it comes to RBG, right? Like we all have, you know, the entire panoply of the mugs and the descent collar earrings. And trust me when I say I've got the throw pillow, all of it, you know, but I think that it's just too easy, A, to say RBG is going to save us. And if she doesn't save us, let's be super mad and relitigate her retirement until end times and pretend that we're doing, uh, you know, democracy work. And that, you know, I respect and admire RBG, but she also was always at pains to say, I stand on the shoulders of Polly Murray uh, and said it almost every time I ever interviewed her. And so what I wanted to do was debunk the idea that there's just one, you know, legal woman who is an avatar for everything else. I want to talk about the everything else. And that gets us long-windedly to Polly Murray, who I think could have just as easily been RBG and is, as you say, almost utterly ignored by history. So the place to start, by the way, is this incredible movie, My Name is Polly Murray by Betsy West and Julie Cohn, which really helped me become obsessed with Polly Murray in the last two years. But Polly Murray essentially was before Thurgood Marshall, there was Polly Murray. Before RBG, there was Polly Murray. Uh, Polly Murray, and I should note, probably today would want to be identified as they, uh, certainly considered herself gender nonconforming, uh, but was not in a moment where there was language for that. But Polly Murray gets into Howard Law School uh, as a black woman, uh, doesn't get into her first choice law school because uh, uh, of being a woman, doesn't get into first choice college because of being black gets in, is one of a tiny smattering of women, writes a paper that becomes the sort of prescient argument that will be used by Thurgood Marshall in Brown v. Board, never gets credited, finds out years later, oh, by the way, this was your analysis, but history has forgotten. Polly Murray writes, does the same thing for gender that she's done for race and starts writing the analysis that RBG will pick up in briefing about using the 14th Amendment to protect on the basis of gender. At least RBG credits uh, Polly Murray for the work. But then by then, Polly Murray's moved on, right? Polly Murray is desegregating lunch counters before anyone else. Polly Murray refuses to move to the back of the bus before anyone else. And somehow, constitutional history has papered over Polly Murray so thoroughly that I learned not a word of this in law school. And so I think what I wanted to use Polly Murray as sort of emblematic of, A, what we said before, what I said to Victoria, which is women's fingerprints are all over constitutional history. It's just that they're called... Thurgood Marshall's you know, fingerprints, and that's something to think about. But also because this book was really important in my mind as a way of talking about women in power and that women do power, particularly legal power, in groups, uh, often uncredited, often they are black and brown women, uh, often uh, this is really singularly important legal thought and effort that, you know, Thurgood Marshall described Polly Murray's, the, the book she did on segregation, describes it as the Bible of the civil rights movement and has it on his desk. And yet, who's Polly Murray? And so maybe that's just a very complicated way of saying a simple thing, which is everyone in my book, much like Polly Murray, could and should be somebody that we have mugs and throw pillows for. And it's a little bit of a meditation on who gets famous and who gets credit.
So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the chapters in your book about the Me Too movement. And I was really struck about your own experience as a clerk on the Ninth Circuit and a particular judge, Judge Kaczynski. Tell us that story because I found it. I, I, I didn't know this. Uh, I didn't know that you had a personal experience on this and how it fit in to a whole bunch of other allegations about this particular judge. The simple version is simply that this is a judge who, by any metric, is one of the smartest, most creative, you know, brilliant thinker, brilliant writer, uh, became the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. And it was always, I claim, an open secret that he showed porn to his clerks, that he was very, very uh, different with young women than he was with young men, that he talked really explicitly about sex. Some of this was investigated. He had a, an email list that included really graphic uh, porn that went out to many, many people. Everyone knew this. Everyone knew this for decades. And nothing happened. Everyone kind of shrugged and said, this is just Alex being Alex. And, and you're absolutely right. I had known all of this from my own experience as a law clerk, where he said something mildly inappropriate to me a couple of times. But again, I had been involved in hundreds of conversations with people who clerked for him, with people who clerked on the Ninth Circuit, who all said, this is just what it is. And you suck it up because he's a quote unquote feeder judge. This is the launch pad to get a clerkship for Anthony Kennedy at the Supreme Court. And to me, and I, and I will say this, in the 10 days since the book has come out, I've had multiple conversations with legal reporters who have said the same thing, which is, oh, we all knew. We all knew this. So this wasn't so much, it came out when I wrote about it, and I did write about it after a few much braver than me women came forward and said what he had done to them, and what he had done to them was far worse. And I thought about why I had kept this secret for two decades and all that I had benefited as a journalist from keeping the secret, all the panels I did with him and all of the amazing perks. And then after a pretty anguishing couple of days, I wrote a piece saying, look, this is all true. I knew about it. This is what he said to me. It wasn't me me tooing Alex Kaczynski. It was me saying this was an open secret that absolutely every law school knew about and continued to invite him. Every uh, uh, judge that I knew knew about and continued to do events with him. And why was that? So I wanted to think about both at the time and in the chapter in the book, why it is that we all knew this and we did nothing. And why it is that the handful of women who came forward and put their names on the record and said, no, this is what he did to me, including Heidi Bond, and folks should read uh, her account years later of what happened in her clerkship, I wanted to really think about how it is that the federal judiciary tasked with <laughs> investigating and having findings of fact and determining outcomes, and by the way, tasked with protecting women and other vulnerable minorities, did such a unbelievably, unspeakably crap job of finding out what happened there. And maybe the coda to the story is after a couple of us came forward, I think eventually 14 women put their names on the record, some of whom are law professors, some of whom are judges. Judge Kaczynski stepped down and short-circuited what would have been the investigation into his conduct. And so we will actually never know what happened. So, you know, many of the, the women in your book, and you just gave one example of, of that, um, 
get chewed up by the system when they try to stand out. Polly Murray, certainly, maybe she wasn't exactly chewed up by the system, but she certainly was never rewarded the way she possibly should have. You you talk about Christine Blasey Ford. Sally Yates got fired. Well, she was going to get fired anyway. She was a holdover from Obama. I don't know if that's an example of somebody facing, you know, consequences for standing up. Maybe the firing, maybe the firing wasn't her getting chewed up by the system, but she certainly got chewed up as a result of her stepping out. And I'm just sort of curious if you would elaborate on the kind of the way women step up versus the way they get uh, particularly chewed up when they when they step up. I, I love that question, Victoria. I think one of the things that the chapter that's about Christine Blasey Ford and Anita Hill, to me, is really me working through, you know, how some women like Anita Hill, who made similar claims to Christine Blasey Ford and was similarly believed, I think, uh, and yet kind of stepped over and not really granted an accounting. Some women really do never recover from this. And I think Christine Blasey Ford, to me, is someone who in some sense, I think we owe an apology to because we all sat around saying we believed her and then confirmed uh, Justice Kavanaugh anyway, and in some way never gave her an investigation and an accounting that she deserved. So I think maybe the short answer is an awful lot of people, and I would say just going back um, to the question about Judge Kaczynski, I think that part of the problem with the way Me Too plays out is that we ask women to do this thing, you know, to step in and be heroic and to, in some case, you know, in peril to life and limb, right, get death threats for the rest of their lives, um, do this work, and then we say to them, thank you, you're so brave, I believe you, and nothing changes. And I think that's Part of the reason that I think that Me Too can't be a system that comes without meaningful investigation and findings of fact and conclusions, because it otherwise is just feelings ball, right? I, Christine Blasey Ford has this note where she says, you know, when I tell people my name, they don't say, I believe you. Like, I believe you is not the, the honor you think it is to be bestowed on someone who is trying to tell their truth. And so I, I, I guess the short answer is that it is really, to me, deeply sad that many of the women, Emily Murphy, Heidi Bond, Leah Lippman, Diva Shah, who I name in the book as the folks who've done yeoman's work for years trying to get the federal judiciary to better police Article Three judges and to create better systems for reporting investigation and removal, now have a full-time job in addition to their full-time job of doing whatever legal work they signed up to do. And by the way, they all have like kids and families to contend with as well. But now they also have to do this work of going around the country speaking to judges and going around the country and speaking to law schools. So the, it, partly it's that the system chews them up. Partly it's that the system wants them to participate in this ongoing process of discovery and discussion and you know repair, and yet nothing ever changes. So we're going to get to the Supreme Court soon because this is going to be another incredibly important uh, term. And we have one of the smartest uh, Supreme Court analysts on our podcast. So we want to take advantage of that. But before that, I, I want to, since we brought up Sally Yates, I do want to ask about her because she's an example of someone who at a critical time, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, kind of struck a blow for the rule of law, for institutions. And she 
had what, you know, the, the, the sort of choice that you would expect people to have to make in, in the situation that she was in, this was after the Muslim ban executive order was issued, was, you know, either you defend an executive order that you believe is unlawful or you quit. And she took a different path. So talk about Sally Yates, why you decided to profile her and that decision that she made. It's a through line through the whole book of, and it's been a through line of my, what I call my welcome to my breakdown, you know, coverage of the Trump administration generally, because it's always a question of whether you stick it out, whether you try to fix things from the inside, whether there's some utility. And a lot of folks who stayed on in the Trump era said, listen, it was better to have an adult in the room, right? A steady hand on the steering wheel, or if at some point you just say no. And, And I think in a way that is an existential rule of law question that we have not begun to reckon with. You know, there was an amazing piece in the Times this week about, you know, all of the the folks in the Trump administration that have found their way into big law who, you know, have faced no repercussions. And I think that there's a really hard question about how long you stay and when you become complicit in something that is clearly wrong, just going back to the complicity discussion about Article Three judges. And so I think to me that line is ambiguous and people find it on their own. But I think that for me, that the fact that Sally Yates was one of very, very few people who had very high-ranking jobs in the Trump administration and said no, emphatically no, publicly no, not I'm waiting for two years and then I'm going to write a tell-all you know, book about how I was secretly fighting from the inside and I was the only adult in the room. But like right here, right now, I cannot put the imprimatur of DOJ on this travel ban that I think is rooted in religious animus. And so I start with her in some sense because I thought there would be thousands of her and I was quite sad to realize that there were maybe tens of her and a lot of the people who I think really thought that they had to leave at some point because a line had been crossed waited until January 6th to do it. And I think the other reason I start with her is because this book does have an arc from somebody who was a third-generation attorney, a white woman from Georgia, someone who is an institutionalist, institutionalist, right? She's a, a Frank Capra character. It, and, and in a sense, I wanted the book to be rooted in that because I think that's how we think about rule of law and institutions. But I needed it to end with another woman lawyer in Georgia, you know, Stacey Abrams, who is not an institutionalist, who is black, who doesn't come from a family where everyone's been a lawyer for generations and who's thinking about all these issues not from the helm of the Justice Department but from the like trenches of voter suppression and election denialism in Georgia. And so maybe the arc that I was trying to trace is from the most institutionalist kind of white story about law in America to the story of, y'all, you can win all the cases you want and you can have the Justice Department. This is the moment we're in now. And still democracy can be sliding out from between your fingers unless you're doing the work of engaging voters on the ground for the midterms. 
Dahlia, you brought up Stacey Abrams, who is one of the <laughs> Here comes the, the Isakoff brick bat. <laughs> yeah, yep. here's, you know, one of the women you're celebrating in your book. She lost the 2018 election, refused to concede, insisted that the election was stolen from the people of Georgia, as she said on a number of public occasions, and as a result of voter suppression, which is something you discuss in, this, in the book. And she took her case to court. On Friday of last week, the week your book came out, a federal judge in Georgia, a a black judge appointed by Barack Obama, released a 280-page opinion in which he rejected every single one of Stacey Abrams' claims about voter suppression in Georgia. And I found this absolutely mind-boggling. If you go through the judge's decision, he goes through piece by piece, every single piece of evidence that Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight brought up. And he says, unproven, one of his, you talk a lot about the exact match policy plaintiffs, and this is from the judge, have not provided direct evidence of a voter who was unable to vote, experienced longer wait lines, was confused about voter registration status by virtue of their exact match status, or experienced heightened scrutiny at the polls. Every single one of the claims of Stacey Abrams was rejected in a decision not on procedural grounds, on the merits. Look, we've all been through this with the Trump election denial nonsense, and the ultimate card we've all used is every single one of Trump's claims was rejected in court. Here we have the exact same thing with Stacey Abrams, are you prepared to acknowledge that Stacey Abrams' claims about voter suppression have been debunked? Yeah, and I think it's really important that it was adjudicated. I mean, this is this is kind of the point that I want to make about the Me Too stuff as well, which is we can't litigate this in journalism, right? We can have a lot of, of claims that we say we believe. I have no problem. Uh, and I will go so far as to say this is a quibble that Rick Hassan at UCLA has with the book, and it's not wrong, which is if you're going to say Donald Trump didn't concede, you have to similarly say Stacey Abrams didn't concede, and that's a problem for democracy. And I will stipulate uh, that it is, you know, I think there's a difference between Stacey Abrams saying I'm not conceding this election and Donald Trump continuing to say that Joe Biden is not the president. So obviously there's a hundred. Granted, miles. and there was no violence associated with Stacey Abrams' claims. There's no right. No, I mean, they, let's, let's concede that they're miles apart and that they're they're two flavors of the same problem. And I think that we have to be very, very honest on both sides that, uh, you know, when we lose in court, we lose in court and we have to move on. So I I'm absolutely fine with that. I don't think it is the case that, and it's why the Julie Robinson opinion in the Chris Kobach case is in the book. I don't think that we can say that this therefore discredits all vote suppression efforts, all state efforts to, right? Chris Kobach was in fact purging voters from the rolls. Uh, And I think that it's important to say, I think Vote suppression happens. I think election denialism happens. But Georgia was the prime example that people have been citing for years now. Yeah, I'm and not. It, here we have, as I say, this was on the merits after a months long trial. And I just want to give you one example because you cite it in your book, the one specific example, a um, uh, 
Carlos Del Rio, chair of Department of Global Health at the Rollins School of Public Health uh, at Emory University, went to vote in the 2018 election. And, you know, his name was spelt in the day in the database Del Rio with no space in between. And on his voter registration card, there was a space in between because of that dispute. He tweeted something about how he was prevented from voting. I looked at the testimony because this guy testified at the trial. And what he testified to is he brought out his cell phone after that, showed the, the poll worker, you know, his correct name, the space, his, the poll worker spoke to his, her supervisor, came back, and the guy was allowed to vote. Total time that he was prevented from voting, eight to 10 minutes. And this was has been cited as a case of voter suppression. I, I gotta say, it's a pretty underwhelming case of voter suppression. And it's the one example you cited in your book. Yeah, no, I, I again, if there are findings of fact, if a court has done this work, you're never going to get me to say that journalism triumphs over that, right? This is journalists doing journalism in real time. I will say, I think that, again, his example, and we knew, by the way, uh, even you know years ago, I think we knew that he was ultimately allowed to vote. So that's not a thing we didn't know, that he was, right. nobody, I think, claimed that he was precluded from voting altogether. It was, uh, I think, and still stands as an example of what happens when you have this exact match, your name has to be the same name. And again, I think this you know, is the kind of stuff that uh, Judge Robinson found in the Chris Kobach lawsuit. But I, you know, again, I think this is, it goes to the Me Too stuff as well. I don't think that journalism or uh, the writing of books is a final adjudication on the merits. I think that it is really important that these things get sorted through in lawsuits. And you're not, I think, going to ever find me say, that, unless it's Eileen Cannon, you know, that the judge is making up facts here, right? <laughs> this is an adjudication on the merits. And I think that's important. But I don't think that that means that there's no such thing as voter suppression or that there's no such thing as polling places that are being closed in, you know, minority precincts or, you know, eight hour waits in minority precincts or closing souls to the polls or closing, you know, Sunday voting or early voting. All of those things are happening. And you're right to say maybe this isn't the example and we use the wrong example and we'll see how this plays out. But it doesn't, I think, in any way undermine the fact that the project has been since the day Shelby County came down to use being released from preclearance in states that had preclearance as a way to suppress minority voting. And so I don't think that that principle uh, is in any way, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe every single effort at vote caging and vote purging and closing minority precincts and, you know, questioning uh, names of foreign voters, maybe all that disappears with the Georgia lawsuit. But in my view, the fact that we are adjudicating this on the merits is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, much as it is the, a good thing that we are adjudicating the claims, the 60 claims that the election was stolen on the merits in Donald Trump's case. I don't think we should be doing this by journalism and mob. That's that's my answer. So, uh, Dahlia, your manuscript was essentially, you know, going off to the printer when uh, the Dobbs decision uh, was handed down. Um, and so, you know, this like generational fight uh, for involved, you know, with 
women leading it, obviously a lot of men involved in it as well, involving you know the basic, most fundamental rights of, of, of women, you know, that, that was a huge loss. So talk about how that decision, um, how you sort of um, absorbed that decision into your thinking about this subject and what it tells you about what the path forward is for women and women lawyers. I think between January 6th and Dobbs and the election cases that Trump lost, and now I would say another existential fight, which is these Mar-a-Lago documents, it became manifest to me at some point that a book that I thought was about history was in fact a book about the future and a book about current events. And you're quite right. I had to, you know, rewrite the epilogue and rewrite the foreword and rewrite the abortion chapter just in in a couple of days after Dobbs came down, because you can write a whole chapter about uh, Bridget Amiri and the ACLU winning the right to terminate pregnancies if you're a teen migrant at the border, but it doesn't help if you can't get a pregnancy anymore after uh, get a, a abortion anymore after Dobbs. So I think the answer is the answer that I had throughout the book which is that the law is two things at the same time, particularly for women. And maybe this goes to the original question about why there is, in my view, a special relationship. And I think that that is simply that the law has been used for most of American history to keep women down, right? The law has been used time after time to ensure that women don't vote, that they can't have property, that if their husband rapes them, they have no legal claim, that they can't have a credit card, right? That was what the law did. And with huge thanks to the Pauli Murrays of the world and the Elizabeth Cady Stantons of the world and the RBGs of the world, the law is also the thing that lifted that, right? That that took us out of a world in which uh, the law could be weaponized against women and it could be used to make women equal and to give them dignity and to give them their own property and their own protections. And I think that that is the seam that this book is sitting on, right? I think it is sitting on the seam. It's why I start with crowds chanting, lock her up, which we thought was a metaphor about Hillary Clinton until we realized at the end of the book that it's in fact not a metaphor, right? People are going to go to jail. They are already going to jail in Atlanta and in Texas and in Oklahoma for endangering their pregnancies. Lock her up isn't a metaphor. Lock her up is the power of the law to incarcerate women. And I think that maybe that's that's what I was thinking about the whole time, which is that Dobbs is proof that the law can be used to render women second class and invisible in Judge Alito, in Justice Alito's opinion, and to say if you weren't, if you didn't matter at the founding, if you didn't ma- matter at the drafting of the Reconstruction in, uh, Amendment, you don't matter now. And law can also be used to get us out of that. And I think this book is a series of big wins for the law, for the rule of law. But I think that we have to live in that tension. And I, you know, talk, Anita Hill talks about that a lot in the book. So does Becca Heller, so does Vanita Gupta, that we have to live in the tension that the law is simultaneously the instrument of women's oppression and not just women, LGBTQ Americans and Native Americans and and, uh, uh, black Americans. And it is also the instrument of freedom and democracy. And it sucks, it sucks that it's both. After having written this book, what do you think the trajectory is? Because on the one hand, I think the book vindicates the idea that the rule of law and that institutions in this country are quite resilient. But on the other hand, we see some erosion and there are threats on the horizon 
depending on who gets elected. So how optimistic are you about the future, uh, having now written this book about the way these women have been able to use the law? I'm less optimistic than I was. I think it's worth stipulating that we won a lot of stuff in four years in the Trump era. Uh, and one of the things I wanted the book to do was remind us that we won a lot and that Donald Trump was the losingest president in legal history, right? I mean, his win-loss record was shocking in no small part because a lot of women stepped into the breach and said, the way Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn did in Charlottesville, I guess if the Sessions Department, Jeff, Jeff Sessions Justice Department isn't gonna investigate uh, you know, uh, hate crimes in Charlottesville, we'll do it with a civil lawsuit. So I think that A, I wanna celebrate the winningness, cause it's huge. And B, I'm terrified. I would be lying if I wasn't terrified because Dobbs is terrifying. And as I said, I think we are now living in a revanchist moment where a lot of women, particularly vulnerable women, are gonna suffer a lot as a result of Dobbs and are already suffering a lot. But I guess my answer to you is this. I don't know what the thing is that isn't the rule of law. What scares me is plan B. <laughs> and I don't mean the birth control. I mean, I don't know, and I say this a lot, and I, it sounds like I'm being flip, but without a regime of law and order and institutions, I think we're down to street fighting and power and money. And I don't think that's a regime that women prevail in at all. And so, you know, at the risk of, of sounding cartoonish, I'm deeply worried that law is not enough to get us through what we need to, particularly because of structural uh, you know, imbalances in the Senate and the Electoral College and all of the ways in which the law was already designed you know, in some ways to harm women. But I hate to think about what we have to use if we don't have it. And so my argument, I guess, is that all those amazing women in Iran who are protesting, who are burning their headscarves and cutting their hair, don't have a toolbox that we have, which is women judges everywhere women uh, district attorneys, women prosecutors, women you know, entering law school in numbers equal to or exceeding men, that's an amazing set of tools. It's not nothing. And if it comes down to that versus street fighting, I'm going to have to say that I have to put my hope in the rule of law, unsatisfying though it may be. So let's talk about the Supreme Court to come. So you know, we, we end on, or, or the Supreme Court term ended nearly. There was a decision after Dobbs, but, you know, pretty much ended with the, the Dobbs decision. And now the curtain is raised on the forthcoming uh, Supreme Court term, which has once again been called a, a blockbuster term. Tell us, you know, just what you think are going to be the big decisions that the Supreme Court is grappling with this term. And in particular, let us know what you think about the addition of the fourth female justice on uh, the Supreme Court. Even in you know two days of oral arguments, she's made a pretty notable. She's had a pretty notable impact in terms of the the tone and the way the Supreme Court is hearing its cases. I think what I would say is that, and this goes into the bucket of other indictments of the media. One of the mistakes we made last year was talking way too much about Dobbs 
and not enough about Bruin, uh, you know, the gun case, not enough about the EPA case, certainly not enough about the religion cases, which I think are catastrophic, uh, or the public health cases, you know, the, the, the deconstruction of the administrative state. All that happened last term, and we talked about the term as though it was aberrational because of Dobbs. I think it's clear now that it's not the cases that are aberrational or the term that's aberrational, it's the court, right? And that's the approval ratings that go along with that and this just bizarre internet Nicene fight that you're hearing between John Roberts and Sam Alito and Elena Kagan about, you know, whether we care that we're legitimate or not. So I think that's how we have to frame this. We have a court that is, I think, aberrant. And yet we're covering it as though, you know, these are the these are the cases that are going to be weird. All the cases are weird in some sense, in many senses, the decision to take Many of these cases are weird. So yes, we have affirmative action in higher education on the docket. We have the Clean Water Act case that was heard uh, this week. Uh, we had uh, the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act case in Alabama, also heard this week. We have follow-on case to Masterpiece Cake Shop about whether service providers in Colorado can, in violation of their civil rights statutes, uh, go ahead and discriminate against LGBTQ couples. Uh, we have uh, an incredibly important Indian Child Welfare Act case that I think will really kick the legs out of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, and over all of that, we have uh, Moore versus Harper, which is, I think, the single most important case that nobody's ever heard of that just goes to whether states and state legislatures can set their own election procedures in a way that cannot be reviewed by state Supreme Courts under state law. And if that case, which I think may happen, is blessed by the Supreme Court, we're looking down the barrel of a 2024 election that you know should give people chills. So all that's happening. And all that's happening in some sense because the court has reached out and taken cases that were not properly before it. And that doesn't even include the rise of the shadow docket and cases that are being decided at midnight with unsigned orders, you know, without briefing. That said, I think that this switching out of Stephen Breyer for Ketanji Brown Jackson is really interesting. It's interesting in some sense because, you know, for the first time in history, as you said, there are four women on the court, and that's an amazing moment. It's interesting because, you know, we really are hearing it even in this first week of uh, Justice Jackson at oral argument. She's just a boss. I mean, her questions are amazing. Justice Alito used to say, uh, you know, it takes almost a year to get comfortable asking questions from the bench. And she just came out fists flying, both in the Clean Water Act case and in uh, Merrill, the um, Voting Rights Act case. And I think that I want to also say that there was this singularly telling moment in that Voting Rights Act case where in the face of Alabama arguing that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and uh, the Constitution and the Civil uh, Rights Amendments all really, are, and the, and the uh, Voting Rights Act demand race blindness, demand that whites not uh, face discrimination. She just started reading from the reports around the drafting of the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And it was, you couldn't hear it. And thanks to the court, because they're still broadcasting the audio, even though they're back in person, you couldn't hear it and not say, having this come from somebody descended from slaves on both sides, right, who sat in Chief Justice John Marshall's chair as part of her investiture, he was a slaveholder, to hear her simply say, 
I don't think this was a colorblind project. <laughs> I don't actually think that the 14th Amendment was trying to be colorblind. I think it was doing reparations and repair work for massive racial injustice. She's going to lose, let's be clear. She's going to lose a lot. But as a construction of a historic record, and as a resurfacing of text and history, that's supposed to be the conservative project at the court. Holy hell, that was cool. Let me just follow up, which is one of the things that you mentioned is, is how we, we have a tendency to cover, you know, the Supreme Court on a case by case basis and not necessarily see the through lines that are connecting the way this Supreme Court is currently operated. And there's one phrase that I think is a through line um, that I kind of want to ask you about at, at the risk of being a little bit wonky, uh, Supreme Court wonky. But, you know, we, we live we live to do that every once in a while on skull, Skullduggery. There's this phrase deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, which seems to to be a, a kind of a standard or a through line through many of the decisions that the Supreme Court justices have been issuing over the course of the last four or five years. It calls upon a, a, an historicism about the way America and the law acted that ultimately works to the disadvantage of women uh, because, it, you know, women deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition are are not exactly treated all of that well all that well i'm curious how you see that standard kind of weaving its way through the supreme court going forward and in the last few years i love that question essentially you just did the precy of the dobbs dissent right i mean the the three justices together uh, writing the dissent in Dobbs make exactly the point that you make, which is deeply root rooted in the you know history and tradition is that women are not people and they don't vote and they have no say anything. And uh, that's true. And I think that's just descriptively correct. And maybe it also goes to this point about the way text and history are being deployed right now, because, you know, that's what we find in Bruin, right, the guns case. Uh, that's what we find time and time again is what I think a lot of legal historians are calling a, a, a pretty cherry-picked version of what constitutional history is. And the Dobbs case, you know, you can read any of the thousands, I mean, if you really want to wonk out, uh, the thousands of takedowns of the history that is deployed in Bruin and in Dobbs uh, to get where the court wanted to go. So I think in some sense, the answer is that it's really important that Ketanji Brown Jackson isn't making a claim for progressive constitutionalism or isn't making a claim for living constitutionalism the way David Souter would have characterized it. She's actually saying, if you want to read text in history, let's go there. Let's use your tools on your battlefield. Here's what the text in history says. And the other turn here that I think is so important, and I can't remember if I talked about it with you all after Dobbs, but one of the things that was so fascinating to me is that in reading the substantive due process provisions of the Constitution, in thinking about family privacy and bodily autonomy and dignity, the thing that Justice Alito just blinkered out, was not interested in engaging with, was the actual constitutional history of why the 14th Amendment protected women's bodies and women's reproductive choices and protected the way you organize your family and raise your children. And if you think about the Reconstruction Amendments as having been written in order to confer freedoms that slaves didn't have under the existing protections of the Constitution, and if you think about all the work, and this goes back to Polly Murray, it goes to Peggy Cooper Davis, and it goes to Dorothy Roberts and the uh, 
almost always black women who were writing the history of what it was that substantive due process and bodily integrity and autonomy were supposed to confer. It was supposed to be that post-slavery, freed slaves could no longer be forced to reproduce with somebody who owned them to have children, couldn't be separated from their spouse, couldn't be separated from their families or their children. All of the drafting suggests that was the animating idea about why it is that you, to this day, have a right to use birth control, have a right to marry the partner of your choice regardless of their race. And the fact that the actual text and history of what that was supposed to protect is invisible to Justice Alito goes to how selective text and history is, deeply rooted traditions are. And so I love the question because it raises, for me, this really intractable problem of why progressives gave all that away. Well, Dahlia, we could wonk out with you for another hour, uh, especially with uh, Victoria leading the way, but we will um, instead just uh, invite our readers to check out Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Dahlia, thanks again for being with us. Thank you for having me. Happy 2022 term. It's going to be, you want to see brickbats made of brickbats? <laughs> Just you wait. We shall see. We shall it's see. It's going to be a shit show. <laughs> I think shit show. All right, on that that's, the, that's the legal, that's the legal, the official yes. legal term. Exactly. That's the wonky, that's the wonky It's in the 13th Amendment, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all.